Thank you, Father, for song. Sometimes we struggle, are hurting, have difficulty putting our thoughts together as to how to respond to you. And song gives words to our heart's desire and points us to how to worship you. And so we thank you for the gift of song and the hymns that we have sung this morning. They have been a comforting balm to our weary hearts. And thank you, Father, for your word that in the right way always directs us. And it directs us to the truth and it directs us to you. It is always hopeful. It is always wise. It is always good for our souls. And as we open this book this morning, some of us delighting in the week that is behind us or anticipating the week ahead, others of us weary physically, spiritually, others of us ensnared and trapped seemingly by sin, others of us hurting from attacks, from persecution, from those who have disparaged our name and the name of Christ. This word is what we need today. So would you comfort us by it? Would you equip us by it? Would you train us by it? Would you make us hopeful by it? Would you make us wise by it? Would you transform us? Oh, Father. We need that transformation. Would you change us? So that we would be like our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What makes a church a church? Biblical preaching, biblical teaching, corporate worship, like singing. And wasn't it a delight to see the children singing? I just could hardly keep the tears back. So sweet. Baptism. Communion, being part of worship, communion today, baptism about a month from today. The purity of the gospel, evangelistic proclamation, generous fellowship, sacrificial service, church membership, church discipline. What makes a church a church? What makes, you got to turn this on for it to work, don't you? What makes Grace Bible Church, Grace Bible Church? What sets us apart? What makes us unique? What identifies us as Christ's church and sets us apart and makes us distinct from other churches in the area? 
Certainly that we would hold to the kinds of things that I've already alluded to this morning. And I am thankful for the presence of all of those things and other healthy marks of a godly church. But there's another mark that sets us apart and makes Grace Bible Church distinct, unique, different. It's part of the fellowship that I've already mentioned that ought to be part of every church. And it is the brotherly love that we have for one another. We don't just say we care. We really do care for one another. We love, we nurture, we minister to one another with generosity. In January, I noted that one of the particularly damaging losses of 2020 was the loss of relationship. And because of that, what I want to do in 2021 is particularly emphasize the priority of relationship and the necessity of relationship. And one way that we're going to do that is we're going to build a series of sermons about every other month around the communion table, thinking about relationship and what does relationship in the body of Christ look like. And in the providence of God this morning, we find ourselves at the communion table and at Romans 13, and that is providing an opportunity for the second of these sermons on relationship this year. And it is the priority of love in our relationships. The Apostle Paul explains it this way. Love in the church body is evidence of life in the church body. How do you know that a church is really alive, vibrant, healthy, thriving? You know a church is alive when it loves. There are other signs of life as well. This is not the only sign. But as as we think about relationships in the body of Christ, this perhaps is the benchmark. It is, as you know, one of the things that Jesus Christ himself pointed to as being critical for a church and for his followers that they love one another. That would be the sign to the world of their faith in him when they loved one another. In this passage... The Apostle Paul makes four statements about the priority of love in the church body. Love in the church body is evidence of life in the church body. Four statements about that priority. The first is given to us at the beginning of verse 8. And it is love in the church body. He states the principle. The principle stated. First, he states the principle in a negative manner. And notice what he says. We've already read it. Do not default on your debts. So the apostle says in my translation, owe nothing to anyone. Owe nothing to anyone. Now, it is worth noting as we launch into this passage that the apostle is not talking about financial obligations here. He's not talking about prohibiting loans. Notice the context, the immediately preceding verse. He says, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So you have relationships, particularly in the government, he says in verse 7, but even beyond that, and whatever relationships you have, 
whatever your responsibility and obligation is to in that relationship, make sure you fulfill that. In a sense, all of those things in verse 7 are debts that need repayment and fulfilling of that obligation. And that's what the apostle is talking about. He's going to follow that up in verse 8 and say that we should love one another. That is another obligation that we have. And he says, in a sense, don't default on that loan of love. And the apostle is not saying anything about not taking out loans. He is not saying financial loans are forbidden. In fact, he would be emphasizing that people will commonly have debts. Verse 7 implies there are debts that we have, even to the government and the tax bill that's due in two and a half weeks, not to put anybody in a panic mode. Jesus himself suggests that we will have debts and that debts and loans are part of our lives. And he doesn't forbid them either. Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So if you're in a place where you can loan someone something financially, he says do that. He is... He's assuming that there will be people that need loans and it is appropriate to give them, give them those loans if you can. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that none of our obligations should be unpaid. All of our obligations, relational and otherwise, should be systematically met in a timely manner. If you have a debt, particularly in relationships, pay those debts. He is here stressing the fulfillment of obligations. If you have an obligation, take care of it. In fact, he's being particularly emphatic. He uses a double negative here, which doesn't work in English, but works great in Greek. So he says something like this, nothing to no one be obligated. Make sure that there is no outstanding obligation. There is never a time when you should not pay your obligations and when it is acceptable to default on your obligations, particularly when you are in debt to someone relationally. And he then says it positively, accept to love one another. Love one another. There is one debt, in a sense, that can never be fulfilled or completed. It is the debt of love. Always work to love one another as if you have a perpetual obligation of debt to each other. Now, the question in this clause is, who is the one another? He says, love one another. Is he talking about? Members of the church body, that kind of one anothering? Or is he talking about all people everywhere? And because he says, he who loves his neighbor at the end of this verse, and then again in verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And because he's coming out of the context of the government in verse 7, many commentators, perhaps even most commentators, take this to mean that we should love 
everybody everywhere. And we should be known as being loving kinds of people with all people. And that is certainly possible. And it is certainly true that a believer in Jesus Christ should never be characterized as being someone who is unloving, ungracious, and unkind. However, I don't think that that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And what clues me in is his use of the term one another. That's a familiar term. Paul uses that word 40 times in the New Testament. Two times, he uses that term one another about relationships between unbelieving Gentiles. So an unbeliever with an unbeliever. One time, he uses it about the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. One time, he uses it about a believer's relationships before he was saved. The other 36 times he uses it about relationships in the church body. So 90% of the time he uses the term, it always refers to believers in fellowship with one another. And what is particularly notable is that he never uses that word to speak about a believer's relationship with unbelievers. It's always believer with believer. And so when Paul says, love one another, he means that the testimony of our lives is that we have a particular, definitive, continual, abounding love for other members of Christ's church. We demonstrate our unity to Christ by our loving care of one another. This is the very thing that Jesus said was definitive about his followers John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Paul is simply echoing the words of our Savior, affirming what our Savior has said is definitive about the life of the believer in relationship with one another. Let me say it this way. In the church, we do not tolerate one another. We do not endure one another. We love one another. It took great restraint this week for me not to pick up one of my commentaries and throw it against my wall. Because the commentator said, we don't have to like each other, but we do have to love each other. There's a really good biblical word for that. It's called baloney. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you cannot love one another without being in harmony with each other and liking each other. Guys, if you want a quick stay in the hospital, I suggest you go home this afternoon and tell your wife, Honey, I just want you to know I love you, but I really don't like you. It won't work, will it? It doesn't work in the body of Christ either. We don't tolerate each other, brothers. We love each other. 
It has been said about this debt of love that it is a debt that can never be paid off, but we should keep the interest paid up. I like that. Keep the interest paid up. You can say my tax bill is paid for the year, but no one can ever say I have finished loving my wife. Don't need to do that anymore. Done. No one can say kids are 18, they're out of the house. Finished with them. Sayonara. Loved you. Or the grandkids. Or the brother and sister in Christ. We're never done. We're never finished loving. It is perpetual. The obligation. The privilege. Is continual. Another question that Paul leaves somewhat unanswered is what does it mean to love? Um, Notice the text. He just says, oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. He assumes we know what it means to love. And in fact, as I looked about at, at the book of Romans and how he used that term in Romans, there's almost no explanation, perhaps a hint of one, In chapter 12, we looked at this a few weeks ago, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. So whatever love is, it is unhypocritical. It abhors what is good, excuse me, abhors what is evil. It clings to what is good. It's devoted to one another in brotherly love. It is giving preference to one another in honor. So we find find hints of love there. But almost nowhere else in Romans does he tell us this is what love is and this is what love does. You're well familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. That tells us much about the nature of love. Ephesians 5 reminds us of the sacrificial example of Christ's love. But it seems to me that we often often misunderstand what love is. And when I meet with couples trying to help them with some relational issues or do premarital, one of my favorite things to do is to ask them, so tell me what love, do you love your wife? Yeah, I love her or I'm trying to or something like that. What does it mean to love? And and it's kind of like deer in the headlights. And a lot of them say, well, I I don't know. I've never really thought about trying to define it. Let me give you a definition. Love is a commitment. I don't know how many times I've had people write this down and memorize it. Love is a commitment of my will and affections. To your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me, as an expression of Christ's love for me. It's a commitment. But it's a commitment not just of will, but also of affections. I love to love my wife. It is a duty. But it's the best, most joyful duty I ever have had. It's to her needs. It's to your needs. To your best interests. And it doesn't matter what it costs me. Why? Because Jesus loves me. That's kind of a clunky definition. I've memorized it and said it hundreds of times probably. So it doesn't feel clunky, but I know it's a little clunky. So let's try this one. Love is my privileged commitment to give what is good and gracious to you, regardless what it costs, because Christ loves me and I love him. My gift of love to others is the overflow of my love for Christ and His love for me. 
You ever notice how often Paul and the New Testament writers talk about loving others in the church body? Why are husbands and wives told so often that they need to love each other? Why does Paul say to Titus that older women should train the younger women to love their husbands and love their children? I mean, there's there's a new, well, there was a new baby over there. And that love just comes naturally, right? I mean, the baby comes out and it's just like presto, instant love. You will always love perfectly that child, right? Why do we have to be told, love the babies? Why do we have to be told, love the husbands? Why do we have to be told, love each other in the body of Christ? Why is it said over and over and over? Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Chapter 4, verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And we know about Ephesians and all of the instruction that Paul gives there about loving in the body and particularly in the context of the marital relationship. But it's not just, it's not just Paul's hobby horse. First Peter chapter one, the apostle Peter, verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls from a sincere love of the brothers, fervently love one another from the heart. Don't just do stuff for each other, but from the heart, make sure that the love is genuine. It's not just Peter, it's also John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, from the beginning of Christ's message, that we should love one another. 3.11, 3.23. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of, the, of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. And then he spends almost all of chapter 4 saying, love one another. And by the way, if you don't love one another, you don't love Christ. Why? Why this massive repetition on something that seems so fundamental? Isn't it easy to love each other? I mean, I'm lovable, aren't I? Okay, I heard like one small yes. It concerns me that it wasn't Regine. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I was in a conversation with someone recently, not anybody in this church body. And I knew I had to say, I love you. And my heart wrestled. It's hard. People are hard to love. It is unnatural to the flesh. The flesh says, and we'll talk about this in a minute, love me. The flesh doesn't say love others. And if we're going to love others, it is going to be the overflow of an intentional pushing against the flesh 
that says, make sure you take care of yourself first and don't worry about anybody else. The faithful church is going to be a church that pushes against that. If we're going to persevere, if our testimony in this community is going to continue to be one of Christ's likeness, if we're going to have relationships in this body that will endure, then we will intentionally work at loving one another. We will be purposeful in cultivating love, and we won't stop. Love never has a stop point. It is continual. There's a second principle that he gives, and that is the purpose of love in the church body. Why should we love? Loving others is hard. Loving others puts us in precarious positions. Why bother? Notice what he says in the middle of verse 8. For, because, here comes the reason, here comes the purpose. Because he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Why, why love others? Why, why is it acceptable to have this perpetual obligation of love to others within the church body? Because loving others in the church body fulfills the law. One thing that is notable that you might not capture as you read through this is what Paul is saying about whom we are loving at the end of verse 8. It says, he who loves his neighbor. That's my translation, the New American Standard. Others of you have other translations, I think. In fact, the NAS is one of the few that translates it neighbor. Most of them, most translations render it something like another That's the ESV. I think the King James also translates it that way. The NIV translates it others. And that's actually the word that's here. It's not neighbor. It's a word that denotes others apart from us. But it's not just others. The word that Paul uses here is the word heteros. Hetero. Sexual, so a sexuality that is different, male and female. They're not the same. And what he means us to understand is not just that we love others, but we love others who are different. They're not the same. They're distinct from one another and different from one another. And brothers, we still love in spite of the differences. When we love others who are different, we are doing something that is unique from the world. Because the world says, let's get all of our like grouped people together and then we'll love in that context. And the church says, send me them all. Say Dever and Dunlop in their really helpful book, Compelling Community, Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. Listen. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common ancestry, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. 
In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love for Jesus' sake. Oh, may we never be a group of like-minded people who love each other because we are like-minded. It is when we love those who are hardest to love that we most demonstrate the love of Christ in us. Remember chapter 5? While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. Notice what He calls us. Helpless sinners, enemies. And what motivated Christ for those kinds of people? Love. For those who are helpless, enemies, and sinners in this body, we love them. And we demonstrate Christ. Just a side note. It appears to me from observation This is in the white lines of the text. This is my speculation. But it appears to me that God is always going to have people in our lives that are hard to love. Because when I'm struggling with that, my own heart is being exposed and I'm seeing, Terry, this is where you need to change. This is where you need transformation. The Lord is exposing something that you desire more than Christ-likeness. And you need to give that up so that you can follow me. So you're always going to be that person. Or you're always going to have that person in your life. And I don't mean this to sound trite or humorous. If you don't have that person, maybe you're that person for somebody else. That's hard to love. And maybe you need to be looking at, am I the unlovely person, unlovable person? Why is it important to do that? Why is it important to love the neighbor, love the hard one, love the one who is different? Because when we do that, we, he says, fulfill the law. Now, we understand that what Paul means here is not that we obey the Old Testament law and thereby we merit our salvation. We've done something to accomplish our salvation. He has already demonstrated that it is impossible to do that. Chapter 8, verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and offering, and as an offering for sin. And then He, Christ, condemned sin in the flesh. The law could never kill sin. The law cannot do away with sin. So Paul is not saying here, oh, I know what I said in chapter 8, but if you love one another, you can, you can be satisfying to God. That's not what he means. However, while we can't obey the law perfectly, when we are in Christ, and Christ has fulfilled the law, there is a sense in which we can accomplish what God designed the law to do for people. Chapter 8, verse 4. So that... 
the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law can't save us, but being saved by Christ, now we can accomplish some things that the law demands, and we can do things that are pleasing to God. We can honor Him and glorify Him and live for Him, and we do those things, 8, for according to the Spirit. That's what Paul's playing off here in chapter 13. When we love one another, we're demonstrating that we have been filled by the Spirit of God and we are walking in submission to that Spirit and we are living for Jesus Christ. And is that in that sense that we can fulfill the law. That's the purpose of love in the church body. Let's notice now, verses 9 and 10, the proof of love in the church body. Verses 9 and 10. The proof that we fulfill the law is that by the power of the Spirit, we do what God commands. Paul is particular in verses 9 and 10. And he points to four specific commands from the second table of the law. So the first table, the first four commands relate to a man's relationship with God. This is speaking about the Ten Commandments. The the first four relate to a man's relationship with God. The last six about relationships with one another. And he identifies four of those. We don't commit adultery. That is sexual sin outside the marital covenant a, 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 a sin that is a disregard for the purity of others. It is morally defiling and it is a, an expression of sexual lust and coveting. And he says, when we love one another, we don't do that. And we don't murder. We don't take the lives of others and as, a, as an expression of our anger and hatred. We don't even, ha- we, we don't even hate. Others and are not angry with others. We don't steal. We don't steal the lives of others in murder. And we don't steal their property. Which is another expression of ungodly lust and coveting. Which is the final commandment. You shall not covet. That's the, that's the only commandment out of all the Ten Commandments. The only commandment that deals with the heart is the last one. You shall not covet. That's the inner man. That's our desires. That's our wants. And notice that the prohibition against coveting is all inclusive. It goes to every desire in every area of life. And Paul says that's a redeemed life. That's fulfilling the law as an expression of love for one another. And all of this can be summed up in the, in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor. Here Paul uses the typical word for neighbor. It's anyone that's close by us. Those whose lives intersect with our lives. So our paths cross with them. We are integrally connected to them. Now, Paul says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Paul is not saying there is this. 
Now make sure that you really love yourself well. And make sure that you, Emily, what's that word that we use at home? Self, um, self-care? Make sure that you do self-care. And, and make sure that you, you're taking care of all your inner needs and your inner desires. And then after you are taken care of and you're comfortable, then love others. No, he, he's not saying that. He's not saying you have a command to love yourself. He's simply making an observation. We do love ourselves and take care of ourselves. You know, we put on, you know, nice smelling stuff in the morning and we clean up, you know, make sure we're nicely shaven unless you're the kind of guy that can get away with not being shaven and then you do that. And you put on nice clothes. You go for someone at a meeting and you make sure that you're putting on your best airs. You know, you're just you making sure that you're presenting the best image in every context and every setting. You're making sure that you're getting the sleep you need, the food you need. You're getting, getting everything you need. That's the way we function. And Paul's just saying, whatever you're going to do for yourself to take care of yourself, do that for others. Let me just draw your attention to one thing, one aspect of that that we often overlook. We could go to Ephesians 5 and think about the example of Christ and how he cared for us and that would be appropriate. But think about how you take care of yourself. How do you think about yourself? Any sinners in the room? Okay, so that's like most of you. (laughs) What do you think about your sin? No, I'm serious. What do you think about it? How many of us don't tend to diminish it? Oh, I know I shouldn't have said that, but it wasn't that harsh. I know I shouldn't have, I know I shouldn't have taken more ice cream last night. Than I gave to Ray Jean. But it wasn't that much different. And we minimize our faults. We minimize our failures. We minimize our weaknesses. And brothers, that's what we ought to do for one another. We should be, we should assume Nothing but the best for those we love. We should be slow to be critical, harsh, hard, just like we are with ourselves. We should be really fast and ready to forgive. That's what we do for ourselves. Oh, be slow. To look askance at people. In fact, I think that Paul would have us to understand that. Keep your finger in Romans 13. Go back to the book of Leviticus. Because he's actually quoting from Leviticus here. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, it's... Um, kind of a culmination of a 
a number of laws that seem to be disconnected. Um, just, just kind of a laundry list, if you will, of various laws. And this one comes out of 1918, Leviticus 1918, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that interesting? Paul only quotes the middle part of the verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think he intends the readers to know the rest of that verse and that they should not take vengeance and they should not bear grudges. They should think the best about those who are around them. Instead of retribution and anger, there should be love for all of them. Why do that? Why do that? Notice if your finger's still over at Leviticus 19, there's one more part of that verse that he didn't quote. You shall love the Lord your, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I think Paul expects them to understand that part of the verse as well and remember that as well. We love this way because the Lord commands it. We love this way because we are made in His image and we are being remade in the image of Christ. We love this way because we want to submit to God and be like Him. And that also means when we don't love this way, we are not Christ-like. When we don't love this way, we are in opposition to God and in rebellion to Him. We ought to, we ought to be loving in everything. And that's... Perhaps the summary statement he gives at the beginning of verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong is a figure of speech for saying something in an understated way. Paul means something way more. Tonight, Regine and I are going to sit down about 7 o'clock to a bowl of popcorn and it is not going to be too bad. What does that mean? It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Because I make the best popcorn in town. And it's going to be really good. And Emily's going to be away, so we get more. (laughs) Love does no wrong. What does that mean? It means love always does the best. Love is way over the top. Love is, love just knows no bounds. There's no limit. Love does only things that are a blessing. Love always pursues. Love always seeks the best for others, especially in the church body. And all that is possible when we are in Christ. That's the proof of the love in the church body. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Are you, are you fulfilling the law? That's the proof. He comes back again at the end and summarizes by reminding us 
a second time of the purpose. As he comes to the end, he almost throws us a curveball. Therefore, now he's summarizing, right? Middle of verse 10, therefore. And you expect him to say something that will encapsulate everything he said in these three verses. And you expect him to say something there, something like, therefore, make sure you love one another. But that's not what he says. He says, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Instead of reminding us of what we are to do, he reminds us why we are to do it. When we love one another, we fulfill the law. The one who loves others in the church body has fulfilled the intent and purpose of the law, both the Old Testament law and the law of Christ. We love each other because we love God and we love Christ and we want to love Him and be obedient to Him. Says one commentator, Love is all important in the servant of God. Without genuine love, service will always be defective. What makes a church a church? What makes Grace Bible Church? Grace Bible Church. It's people that we love. And in general, usually, almost always, we do this well. I'm thankful that this is our reputation in the community. We've had other reputations over the years. But this is our reputation today. And that's a grace gift from God. In the last two weeks, I cannot tell you because I cannot count that high about the texts, the emails, the conversations I've had just in the last two weeks about people expressing gratitude for the love and the care that they have received in this church body. The Boggs have talked about it. I don't know how many times Sarah has texted me just absolutely overwhelmed at your care for them. You have cared well for the Davenport's following the loss of their home last Sunday morning in the fire and then the death of Linda's mom this week. The guys that have served, was that last weekend, the ladies' conference? I don't know how many comments I've received of gratitude for how well you guys cared for the ladies. And, And then that gets flipped thinking about the men's conference a few weeks before that and how well the ladies have served us. Just over and over, I've heard report after report after report. The demonstrations of love have been obvious, overt, repeated, gracious, superabounding. And I'm thankful. But that love is not everyone's experience. We've missed some people along the way. We haven't loved some as well as we could. I've had a couple of those emails as well. Some relationships are not as generously filled with love as they could be. So let's hear this from the Apostle Paul. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 
For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to excel still more. We love well. Let us excel still more. For this appropriate obligation. Father we thank you. For the gift of your grace. For the salvation that you have granted to us. Thank you for Christ our Savior. Who first loved us. And showed us. What it is to love another. And equipped us to love another. Might, might we, as much as we have accomplished in the church body and in our homes in loving one another, might we excel still more, pursue harder, love more passionately, particularly, love more enduringly, love more graciously so that we can thereby demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in us as we fulfill this law that Christ gave us. We pray these things in His name. Amen.